You're listening to 90% Mental, Conversations with Grant Parr, Episode 69. Today, mental performance coach Grant Parr sits down with Dr. Duncan Simpson, head of mental conditioning at IMG Academy, to discuss topics such as mental toughness, the buy-in process regarding mental skills training, and the importance of training focus at the high school level. This interview will give you a glimpse into one of the most premier high school programs in the country and the man who is directing its mental performance efforts. Hey, Duncan, how are you? Great to be speaking to you, Grant. Thanks ever so much for uh, having me on the show today. Awesome. I'm excited to have you on my show. Just to learn more about you and your role at IMG and talk about some really important topics, I think, within sports psychology at the high school level uh, with regards to focus and confidence and fear of failure and recovery, and the list goes on. So I'm really excited to talk to you about those topics. Great. I, I can't wait to dive in. All right. All right. Well, so my, my favorite question on every podcast is about mental toughness. So what does mental toughness mean to you? I'll keep it really short. I think it's the ability to, to handle really difficult situations. And, and that's kind of how I, I just phrase it for the athletes. The, the ability from a mental perspective to handle challenges, handle very difficult situations. There's a lot of different research in and around it, but that's how I boil it down. So when, when kind of the rubber hits the road, how, how do we handle those situations? Absolutely. Yeah, me too. I, I, I just keep it simple the way that I, I teach it as well. You know, I basically say it's conquering the emotional hurricane in the moment. Um, oh, I like that. <laughs> when we, yeah. And, you know, it's it's really interesting about mental toughness. And I wanted to get your perspective on mental toughness training, because there's a lot of different perspectives on mental toughness training. There's some people that train athletes to be mentally tough within the environment of their sport, and some of them don't. And and I wanted to get your perspective when you're trying to increase mental toughness or enhance mental toughness. Do you do you believe that you need to train the athlete within their environment, or does stressing out a an athlete outside of their environment does does that translate as well? Yeah, really good question. It's it's something I have been exploring um, and, and discussing with colleagues and, and looking at the the research. I I think. There's kind of that, that, that challenge of the logistics of where we do our work. So the reality is, if possible, um, I would say let, let's do the training in the environment within which they train and compete. So where possible, let's do the work in their actual environment. Um, from, a, from a skill acquisition point of view, from a coaching point of view, you know, we don't believe they'll become a better athlete by just you know, sat in a classroom and talking about it. We believe they'll get better and acquire different skills by actually doing it. So it's a similar similar belief from a mental training perspective. I would say that, you know, not every mental coach has the luxury of, of being out of practice and not everyone gets that luxury of being in competition environments. So sometimes they're a little bit uh, a little bit restricted with with that. And that's just a purely logistic. But yes, I would definitely say try and do it where they're actually going to be practicing and competing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I wanted to ask that question because I've, I've read a lot of research and a lot of different perspectives on, um, on mental toughness training. And I had a conversation with Mike Blasquez, who's 
head of strength and conditioning at UC Berkeley. And he, he, you know, he had a lot of coaches in the, in his past go, Hey, let's do mental toughness training. He's like, okay, what does that look like to you? And uh, we're going to do a lot of military uh, exercises and we're going to do Navy SEAL stuff. And he goes, well, why don't we just stress them out and get really creative on the stuff within the environment? Because that's where they need to be mentally tough, you know, and if, if you want to have your if you want to have your athletes to be really good swimming in an ocean and carrying boulders, well, then maybe you should create a sport for that. But if not, let's get let's keep them within the environment and stress them out and get creative with it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I, I see and how I conceptualize kind of mental toughness, like with a lot of other psychological attributes, it's it's really an outcome. It's something that we're aspiring these athletes to be. There's, there's not an end point. There's not a, a finalized, you are mentally tough or you're not. It's more something uh, a little bit subjective. Obviously, we can't measure it, but what is this attribute that we're looking for? And and then we look at, well, what are the what are the specific mental skills that underpin that? So our ability to manage anxiety and to handle pressure and to control our emotions, our ability to stay focused, our ability um, to, you know, deal with adversity and failure, um, coming up with an, uh, your, your plan to handle physical and emotional pain during those challenging moments. So a lot of that, a lot of those skills can be taught in the environment and need to be taught in the environment. The, the transfer, and I think that's where I kind of touched on that. The, the, probably the more learning literature, the skill acquisition, if we're, if we're really looking at developing mentally tough athletes, does, does that mental training in a military setting or outside of the sport, does it transfer? And I think that's a big question to ask. I, I think you can put athletes in incredibly difficult situations outside of their sport and make them do really hard things. But does that transfer to a pressure situation on a tennis court? Does that transfer to, you know, last couple of seconds in a basketball game? That I don't think we can really say because the, the, the transferability is so, is so uh, separated from the actual training that I don't think we get that transfer. Effect. So I, I think where possible, we've got to try and do the training in the environment. And again, there's logistical challenges to that. But I think you're right, Grant. Let's, let's get creative around putting our athletes under pressure. So I've got an actual example, um, if, you, if you want to hear it, that, that kind of touches on this would be something that we do with uh, tennis. Uh, and and it, the activity I call it kind of what's called never stop tennis. So it's a way of fatiguing our athletes to a degree whereby we're, we're challenging them to make decisions. So basically the premise is, uh, any tennis player of, of a decent level can play two or three sets and not get completely fatigued so how do we increase that fatigue to perhaps put that extra pressure to to challenge the decision making so what we do is a game we never stop tennis which is basically obviously the point starts to play the point out as soon as the point's over they are running non-stop so they continue to run in between points they run they pick the ball up they run back to the line they serve points over they keep running and it is non-stop um, which is very different for tennis players because they have that kind of in intermittent exercise. So this is something that physically, and we also use GPS data, uh, GPS and, and heart rate data. So we, we can fatigue them a lot quicker and then challenge them to make decisions under that fatigue, uh, under that fatigue state. So then that's an example of whereby we're just manipulating the task 
slightly, but we're, we're trying to get to that, that psychological attribute of decision-making under fatigue conditions. I love it. I love it. That's really cool. Um, and I think that's very effective and I love it. It's great. Well, I want to drop in a little bit and learn a little bit more just about you and your, a little bit of your background. Uh, when was it when you realized that you wanted to be a sports psychologist and what was the, the motivation? Great question. I think I think for most people that I speak in the field, um, and I, I don't even like to say this about myself or anybody, but probably I was a, a failed athlete uh, from a from a mental point of view. I, I played tennis and, and soccer, and, and tennis for me was um, something I really enjoyed. I felt like I had a, a level of talent, but mentally I, I was I, I struggled with pressure. I, I got very angry. I, you know, my emotional control wasn't great. And I probably didn't really, you know, reach reach my level of potential, and um, and and then simultaneously doing classes in college, whereby I found I just found that area fascinating because it probably just resonated with me. I was just like, wow, there's this this field is out there. And then, you know, I, I kind of I went through an undergrad in physical education, but didn't want to be a PE teacher, and um, and and then kind of went back to school and, and did a master's in sport and exercise science. And, and it's amazing how physical education and sport and exercise science now actually play in my current role. And then kind of took a few steps and um, ended up coming to the United States and did my PhD at the University of Tennessee. And and from there kind of worked with athletes and, and got into some, uh, went into academia and was in academia for about seven and a half years. So, so kind of did the teaching and the research and, um, and, and while working with athletes on the side. So that's kind of what led me to kind of now uh, transitioning two and a half years ago up to ING Academy. So it's a very kind of cliff notes um, whirlwind. So, but yeah, I think, I think kind of from the failed athlete perspective and, and then obviously just that, that resonated with me and it's something that I was just super interested and passionate about trying to help others whereby maybe I could have been helped if you know there was someone available at that time and maybe there wasn't i didn't even know about it it's kind of how naive you are sometimes right right beautiful yeah when i was playing college football i i wish i had somebody like me i probably would have played another year or two um but i think people like us are vital um i think we we all need someone's going to help us with our mental game so i i totally get it for sure so I want to talk to you a little bit about when you were a, a mental performance consultant. Uh, you know, when I talk about being a mental performance consultant, people are intrigued. They think it looks fun and it's easy, which it is fun and it can be easy. But it can be lonely at times. You have to grind. You have to get clients. Uh, you're working yourself out of a job for the most part. So there's a lot of ebb and flows of being a consultant. So when you were a mental performance consultant, what was the most difficult part of being a consultant for you i think i think when i when i was at barry university i started up my my private practice and was working with athletes and i think to be honest i i didn't really have much business acumen I, that's not that's not my background it's something that really interests me and and even actually in my new role i certainly have a lot more um, input and insight into the business side of it but i just I, I didn't really know how to run a business and, and I didn't really know, you know, didn't really know a lot about marketing and, and didn't really know, and didn't really know a lot about sales and didn't really know about pricing and, and didn't know some of these things. So I think for anyone who's going out there and, and trying to do this, you know, you, 
I, I felt like it was one of those that, hey, I got the knowledge and why are people just not knocking on my door? And hey, I, and then, then you kind of take a step forward and you put a nice website together and then why are people not knocking on my door? Why are people not calling? And it, 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 it really is a process. Um, and even, you know, I thought, hey, I, I've done some good work and I've got some research out there, but it, it you know, um, it, it's still not easy. It, it, so I think, I think the business side, which is ironically some of it that I really enjoyed, that was also some of the, the real challenge. And, and I don't think I ever kind of got it completely right because actually, you know, when I, when I transition to ING, um, we have a non-compete, so I, I kind of have a private practice. So I was just really starting that process of, of trying to get my, trying to get my business really um, to a level where I could actually earn some money through it um, to, to, a, to a degree that would be healthy and, and transitioned out. So I never really got to see, you know, could I do it? Could I could I run my private practice and, and how successful could that be? So I don't envy anybody um, in that in that space, but I, I know people who, who are doing phenomenal work and are making it work. So I, I mean, I'm hopeful. Um, it, 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 that was just a challenge for me. Do you think that educational institutions are addressing that uh, that piece of of understanding the business of being a mental performance consultant? I think certainly what what we tried to do at Barry was we 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 did a, a joint MBA and mm-hmm. um, masters in sports psychology, so there was a joint MBA program with our masters. So so we tried to address it. So instead of two years, it was a three year program. So you got a an MBA with that because we recognized it was it was a, a real challenge, um, but other institutions, I'm not sure. I think because the the challenge is that also the faculty in in the institutions, and there's amazing faculty out there. Not not all of them have the business acumen. They don't. They have their specialization in sport or clinical psych, whatever it might be, and they don't necessarily have the business background. So it's almost like unless they have their own private practice, that's not really where their expertise comes. So I think I think we do need educational programs that make sure you get some kind of entrepreneurship, you get some kind of startup business classes, but you're also limited just from an academic point of view and being a faculty member, you're limited by the number of classes that you have for, for a master's or an undergrad and to have extra electives, cost money, and this is, you know, the kind of educational system challenging in that way. So I think it is important. Um, and I think apps could, could obviously help with that somehow. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think people are aware of it, but I'm not sure what programs are, are doing a phenomenal job of that. And I'm sure there are, but I, I just don't have insight to, to which ones are doing the best work with that space. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well, I want to talk about your current role right now. You're the head of you're head of mental conditioning at IMG. Uh, can you share with my listeners what your role entails? Yeah, absolutely. I'm incredibly fortunate to to be in this role. Um, I oversee twelve mental mental coaches. Um, so probably in in one single location. I, I think we're the biggest mental conditioning team in the United States. I know the military has uh, a lot more, but I don't know that there's 12 at one site anywhere. I could be wrong, but we're one of the largest at least. Um, So I oversee 12 coaches and we work across um, eight sports and 1,200 student athletes, as well as as our performance 
Performance Institute. So that is our, our corporate leg of the academy, which is in and around um, corporate groups that come in and want to do uh, mental training. So my assistant, my assistant head, Lindsay Hamilton, she is in charge of the Performance Institute. So when corporate groups come in, um, she's in charge of the curriculum and, and delivering it and um, evaluation and, and all that in and around corporate space. But specifically to our athletes, we have 1,200 full-time student athletes um, and, and it operates signs. He operates like a, uh, like a regular high school, but more as a boarding high school. Um, right now, we're right at the end of the term. So in about a week's time, we transition to a gigantic summer camp. So for nine, 10 weeks in the summer, we get campers in from all over the world and we transition to a, a camp delivery model. And then our student athletes will come back in the fall, our full-time student athletes and um, again, our, our kind of delivery mode changes back to our full-time student athletes. So, yeah, we're we're spread across we're spread across the eight sports, and um, most of our mental coaches have either one sport or three sports, depending on load and a lot of different factors. But yeah, and and I'm lucky enough to oversee the team and uh, got a set of fantastic professionals. So uh, it really is a, an absolute honor on a daily basis to come to work. That's incredible, you know, and I've always, I've always been fascinated by IMG um, in many ways. The, the athletes that you produce, the mental performance coaches you produce, the strength and conditioning coaches you produce. I mean, when you look at these coaches that are in the, at the collegiate level, professional Olympic, most of them have gone through your program. Why, why do you think that the IMG Academy is so special and produces just quality people? There's, you know, there's there's a number of factors. I think from a from a mental performance um, point of view, mental conditioning group. Uh, I think one, we we hire good people, um, so it's not difficult to develop people. So um, we're lucky enough that we're, we're one of the places whereby, you know, uh, people want to or seem to want to be here. So when we have an open position, you know, we usually have over 100 applicants applying for that for that one position so it's easy to get so it's easy to get good people in here um so i'm really i'm just extremely grateful for that that we just have high high quality people come in and then by the pure setup of the academy if i get a mental coach in in two or three years they will have just had an extraordinary amount of exposure and reps and working with athletes on a day in day out basis so probably there's very few places um probably in the world that you get the amount of delivery opportunities that you do here you're delivering a lot so that just upskills you automatically by being in a closer so hiring good people and then you put them in an environment where they just get a ton of experience and they get a lot of varied experience that all of a sudden in two three years you just got you know some of the people on my team are just absolutely exceptional and you know, they've come in at a good level, but they just upskill very quickly. Um, and I'm not saying that doesn't happen in other places, but that's, you know, when you look at some of the people in the field that have been through the academy, I think that's part of the process is, is that ability to upskill and work with a number of athletes. I think the other side is we, we get the, I think why ING has been successful is that we have phenomenal facilities and there's obviously been a lot of investment in the infrastructure. But across the academy, there's just phenomenal people. Um, so 
I kind of joke that the, the facilities get the kids here, and it's kind of the glitz and glamour. We, you can see the pictures online, but it's the people that keep them here. The, the, an amazing, you know, 40,000 feet weight room is amazing for the first week, and then it kind of just blends into the background, and it's the people that keep them here. So it's the enthusiasm of the staff in and around the place that, that really make it a really special place. Uh, but that that's kind of, you know, I think it's just a breeding ground, and, and you get some of the best athletes from, from all over the world, and it's, like I said, 1,200, and it's a melting pot, and it's, it's it's competitive, but it's supportive and it's challenging. And you know, obviously, that that inherent competition just develops athletes um, pretty quickly. You know, I, I say to everybody, and IMG is not the place for every athlete. Uh, we have we have some complete beginners to some of the best in the world, but it's not it's not the right environment for every kid, and and that's fine. It's not. It's not other high schools, other programs are perhaps better fit. But for the kids that it is a good fit for, it, it, it is a phenomenal place. And, you know, I'm not trying to give, uh, you know, not just drinking the Kool-Aid, but it, it, it is a special place and has been very successful in developing a lot of um, phenomenal athletes. Absolutely. I mean, I... I mean, I have not visited your facility. I've seen it, you know, obviously pictures and, um, you know, on YouTube and the internet, if you will. But, uh, yeah, you're in a very special environment and it's just awesome to hear your perspective on, on why it's so special and why you guys produce quality people. So that's, that's great to hear. I want to drop into you, to your experience working with high school athletes and, you know, considering high school athletes are still learning about their bodies and emotions and thoughts, do you find that this type of work, mental skills training, is more of an introductory experience and that you're still trying to sell them on the idea of mental performance? Or do you see a lot of buy-in at this level? Yeah, great great question. I think I've, I've definitely, prior, prior to coming here, most of my experience was with collegiate athletes and, and a few pro athletes. Um, I'd worked during graduate school. I'd worked with very young athletes, so I, I kind of transitioned and was in the college setting for, for like I said, about seven years. So my my perspective on kind of what the needs are for this population, kind of the eight to eighteen year olds, um, has has changed a little bit. So uh, there's certainly some that it's a little more a, a little more taste educational. There's certainly some that you you, you feel like you're planting seeds and you don't think you'll see that that flower or that, that tree ever sprout until perhaps in college or, or perhaps down the line in professional athletes. They then when they become professional, that there may be something that resonates with them. But then there's also a group of athletes that are just fully bought in. You, you tell them anything, and, and they are just 100% in, and they'll do kind of whatever you want, whatever you want them to do. So we, we kind of joke. It's it's almost like there's like three thirds. So you take the one third of the athletes, it's the bottom third that's probably pretty skeptical, probably pretty hard to, to connect with. Um, you know, some are probably not motivated and, and they're disinterested and, and they don't have a great desire to, to be a college or pro athlete. You kind of have that middle third that are, that are kind of on the fence, they can swing either way, depending what peer groups they're in. And then you have that, that top third that are just 
you know, you tell me what to do and I'll, and I'll do it. And, um, you know, it's, each of those three groups is, is challenging in a different way. But that's kind of, that's a little bit of the makeup. And like you said, ability doesn't always apply to that. We have some phenomenal athletes from an ability standpoint that might be in that bottom third in terms of actual connectedness and bought in. And we'll have some complete beginners that are 100%, whatever you do, I'll do it. So it's, um, yeah, it, it's trying to understand them and their motivations and where they want to go with this, with their sport and, and recognize that everybody's goals and everybody's path is a little bit different. And, um, and I think sometimes that outward, that outside perspective of IMG is, it's just about, you know, it, it's just a factory and we're just trying to produce elite athletes. And, and there's a, there's a, there's, a, there's definitely a performance aspect. We're not going to shy away from the fact we're trying to develop, you know, amazing athletes. But we're, we're really a holistic program. We're a support network, and we're really trying to develop a well-rounded student athlete. Academics for some of my students are just way more important. I got a kid who's, who's got a Cal Berkeley on a 4.7 GPA. I didn't even know there was a thing, a 4.7 GPA, but like that their sport is not the primary thing in their life they they play their sport but academics is their is their thing and, and others are, are going into business and others are going different directions but they just enjoy their sport whereas we have others that their goal is professional and they want to be a professional athlete so i think you have to meet them where they're at and understand what what their path is and, and try and support them on that path yeah that's awesome you you talked about motivation or learning the motivation of the athlete and understanding where they want to go and their goals. Do you think that is the part of the buy-in process into mental skills training? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's you know it's kind of it's it's funny. My ad director here, uh, Taryn Morgan, who's um, started out mental conditioning coach, she's phenomenal. Um, was a long time being associated with Aspen. Taryn says, you know. When you get those kids in the room, they don't they don't care how many degrees you've got, what research papers you've written. They don't care they don't care if you've worked with X, Y, and Z. You've worked with Olympians or pros. They don't care about that. They care about you know. Do you care about me? <laughs> and that and that's that's the truth. They don't they don't care. And you know. And I see it with the coaches. We've got phenomenal coaches, with unbelievable backgrounds. The kids. I'm not being mean. They they don't care. They care. Do you care about me? And can I trust you? And can can you help me? And can you know? Do you are you going to invest your time in me? And and that's probably right. They should be thinking that way. So I've got to go in, and it doesn't matter who I may or may not have worked with or what my background is. They don't care. They'll listen perhaps down the line when I've developed a relationship. Then I then I get questions from athletes about well who, who else have you worked with? How have you da 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 da. da. But at the beginning, they just, they just, you know, do they kind of measure you up? Do you care about me? You know, is it about you? So I always say, you know, it's, it's their journey, not ours. So really kind of understand them and, and really kind of connect with them. So like you said, right, like building the rapport is, is so important, and and it takes time. We've got teenagers from um, 80 plus countries here, uh, so there's there's cultural challenges, there's gender differences, there's age challenges but you know um not every kid's going to connect to this straight away and and some of them have barriers up and you know and and rightly so so 
you just have to be patient. And, and some kids, first day, they're going to come up and just, you know, just want to be your best friend. And some won't want to talk to you for six months. But eventually, you know, with enough smiles, you know, hellos, you kind of break that down. And, and all of a sudden, you connect with them on something. And then you, you go from there. So it's that, that patience of, you know, me wanting to help, but also realizing they have to be willing and ready and able to change. And, and, and also, in uh, you know, recognizing that, it, it takes time. It takes time to build a relationship. They don't have to connect to you just because they're here. It's not an obligation. You you have to invest in that person. Absolutely. I, I agree with you 100%. It's, you know, it's all about valuing them and trust, you know, building trust and rapport. And, and I always, my goal when I'm working with athletes and teams is I try to coach the heart of the athlete because I feel like my end goal is to get to the mind. But if I don't get their heart, if I don't get their trust, um, then I'm I'm an uphill battle. And you're absolutely right. Rapport and trust can be a process. It can take six months, a year, or it can take just one conversation, which is a the beautiful part of the process. But I agree with you 100. percent Absolutely, and it can also be it can also be broken pretty quick. You know, it, that's that's the kind of the tricky thing. You can you know. Uh, uh, just you're interjecting at the wrong time, a, a, a tough bit of feedback at the wrong time after a difficult performance or, you know, they, they perceive you slighted them in some way. You can lose that trust pretty quick too. So you've really got to value and protect those relationships with the athletes. And, and you know, they are my, my singular priority above anything else, above, above my relationship with the coaches, my colleagues, my relationship with the student athletes. Because that's, to be honest, without them, I don't have a job. I don't. So there's no student athletes. I don't have a job. There's coaches, but got to coach someone. So uh, that that's front and center, and they're, they're absolutely in the middle of everything that I do, and, and try and emphasize that thing that when I took over this position, was every decision that we were going to make as a mental conditioning team is it's going to come from the premise of we come back to what is best for the student athlete and. We're going to take that as the core principle and whatever decision we make, we have them right in the middle of it. And if it's not, it, it may not be best for the mental conditioning coach and it may not be best for the coach or the sport, but what is best for student athlete? We have some obviously big picture business challenges. Sometimes that they, they sometimes conflict a little bit and scheduling and those kind of things, but we're going to try our very best to put that student athlete right at the center of all our decision making. Wow. It's awesome. It's awesome. You know, I want to talk to you about success. And I, usually when I work with a team and an athlete, individual athletes, I always dedicate a session to success because we're, we're in a society of instant gratification and we're, we get caught up in the wins and losses a lot. Um, so when we, when we look at that word success, which is a very broad word like love and champion, like we all know what these words mean, but we all have our own internal representation of these words. So when you think about success, the word success, what does it mean to you? When, it, when you say what does it mean to me, is it reflecting on my own work or reflecting on what, you know, for the, for the kind of the student athlete and, and how I may turn it to the student athlete? Yeah, for the student athlete, I mean, this is going to sound a little probably glib and, and cliche, but I, I go back to kind of 
that simple premise of um, doing your absolute best with what you've got in that given day. And, you know, we, we, we look at that from a, from a physical effort point of view. We look at it from a, a mental engagement focus um, point of view. We look at it from attitude. But giving your best on any given day with, with what you have, that, that's kind of success for me. Um, you, you know, it's very easy to get caught up, like you said, in, in the outcome of the, of the sport and the performance. But we're really trying to focus. Again, it's, it's going to be cliche, but we're really trying to focus on that, that process of getting better. We are a developmental academy. And it's hard for, for, for athletes and parents to, to kind of understand this. But I'm not looking at a finished article when I'm looking at a 14-year-old. You know, they're a long, they're a long way off, and you know where you will be in six months, a year, five years, ten years. It's really challenging. So I'll give you an example. We have some really some very high-level female tennis players, and some have just started a little bit later. So so sometimes they're they're maybe one or two years behind their peers, and then they see their peers getting recruited to the really big Division One schools. And, I, and I'm trying to say, and I've got a specific athlete in mind, I just tell her, look, you are going to be an unbelievable junior and senior when you get in college. Whatever coach gets you, whatever program gets you, you're going to absolutely peak and you're going to flourish in your junior and senior year. You're going to, she's just a little bit behind some of the other athletes in terms of her development because she started a little bit later. And, and just, having her understand that her success is not now and it's probably not going to be because she's probably going to be a freshman in college next year. She's not going to peak then and she's not going to really hit her stride, probably sophomore. And I'm not saying this is a limiting factor, but really, you know, I've known this, I know this girl very well and it's more just understanding the path she's on and her developmental process. She's, she's behind some of the other girls. So, so for her, success is not the immediate state. Now, it, it's hard for athletes to understand that, um, but some get it, and some get it. Some get that, hey, I'm, I'm not the finished article. A lot of them think they are, but it's like, hey, you actually, we're aiming to be finished in, uh, uh, not finished, but you're aiming to peak in 10 years' time. And that's not easy. That's not easy to communicate because there's, there's peer comparisons. But that's, that's kind of the... the you know that's how we're, we're I'm, I'm trying to conceptualize and think about success as a process and a developmental a developmental process over time and and uh, what's lucky is a lot of the coaches are bought into that and we forego short-term short-term outcomes to long-term development um and the coaches are really good at that we we know that you know we we love it when they have success in terms of tournament victories and, and those kind of things and the kids are smile and all the rest of it, of course. But we also know that this is, this is one stage of their journey. They're not, a lot of them, most of them are going to go to college and some will go on to pros. Mm. So it's, it's a, it's, it is a development. You know, I love it when you, when you bring up process, because that, that's one of the things that I focus on when we look at success is that, because, if we can remove ourselves from the outcome and we can kind of define and break down certain parts of the process where there is success, whether if it's, you know, working your routine before you get in the batter's box or, you know, when there's um, in baseball, there's bases loaded and you take a deep breath and you get centered and you're relaxed and you work your game plan, that's success. And, and having these kids really 
not just having one conversation, but we're constantly, I'm having coaches and myself identify and actually praising these little successes so they know in the moment that it's more than just the outcome. It's about the process and there's so much success within the process. And it's it's interesting. I was working with a high school basketball team this past year and this this female basketball player, her, her shot wasn't on the whole game. And so you could tell she was second guessing herself. And I think she missed about 12 shots in a row. And I kept on telling her, I'm like, it's bound to go in. Just keep trusting your process. Just take the shot, take the shot. And so she took the shot at the end of the game and missed. And so I had to talk to her. And I'm all, do you know what success was? The fact that you took that shot at the very end of the game. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And I'm like, the fact that you went over 12 and then took the next shot at the end of the game and missed, that is success. That is vulnerability. That's trusting in yourself. And you can go home tonight and sleep a little better because you showed up in that moment. Yes, I know there's an emotional sting to it. You lost. But there's success to that. And it, she didn't get it until 24 hours later. She like came back to me. She's like, you know what? Now that I'm emotionally over it, I get what you're saying. Yeah, that's phenomenal. That's great. Absolutely. So, yeah, so success is, I love having the conversation, especially at the high school level, just because there's there's so many different perspectives on um, what they think and feel and what it looks like. So, so interesting topic, um, you know, yeah, shifting think, into, oh, go ahead. Uh, the one, just one other kind of point on that, that, that I make to them, and, and we, I talk a lot about humility with my athletes, is that, in a lot of sports, I mean, most sports, perhaps golf is the exception here, is that there's people stood on the other side of the court or the field. And you know what? They also want it really badly. And we're not entitled to, to winning. We don't own winning. Anybody anybody can win. So you have to have some humility that that, that person you're competing with, you know, has the same, perhaps has the same dreams, perhaps has the same goals, perhaps has worked their butt off just like you. And you don't own winning. So when someone someone beats you, there's got to be some humility there and, and also an understanding whereby, you know, I, I mentioned it to my athletes the other day. It's like you lose to someone. It doesn't mean they're better than you the whole time. It's just they're better than you on the day. And then, you know, you, you get up and you, you get you get after it tomorrow. But I think that's it's such a key point that, that we don't own winning and our opponents have also earned the right to compete. So that that's what competition is. And competition is about is about just striving to, to be the best we can be. So I think it's really important because sometimes we get in that granular my outcome, my result, as opposed to actually there's there's another person here too. There's another team, there's another individual I'm competing with, whatever it might be. I love it. I love it. We're all striving. Strive to arrive. I, I, it's great. What do you think about when you look at today's athlete, high school athlete, what do you think is the most difficult thing they're dealing with? I know that's a, it's going to be a general statement, but what are you seeing from your perspective? Uh, great question. I'll, I'll speak to the athletes that, that I get to deal with um, uh, on a daily basis. For, for our, our academy, it is a lot of, a lot of social comparison and um, it's somewhat unavoidable. It makes this place great, but it also makes it challenging. So 
they are in a real competitive environment. So you'll bring, you can bring a kid in from wherever you want. And, and for the most part, they're going to be phenomenal athletes from whatever state, whatever country you bring them here. They might not be in the top half of your program. And, and that's just the reality. Um, we had last year, we had eight boys in the elite tennis group that were in the top 20 in the world. So eight of the top 20 players in the world were here. So you, we have kids that are, you know, highly ranked U.S. players. They can be five in the United States, and they're not, they're not in our top group. Like you can imagine that ego check that, you know, you're great everywhere else. So that social comparison happens all the time, you know, in, in different sports and at different levels. And I think you're that measurement by which you, you somatically derive the self-esteem from changes. So all of a sudden, they were, they were a great athlete in their high school, in their state, perhaps even in their country, and they come here and, whoa, there's 15 other people in my team or my group that are also really good. And there's also a handful of athletes that are better than me. And how do I deal with that? Um, so, so it's, you know, it, it's challenging from that perspective. And then obviously with, with high school athletes, just the, the, it's going to be cliche and probably resonate with a lot of coaches out there, their ability to, to focus for an extended period of time. Um, with a lot of demands on our athletes from academics, from from school, uh, sorry, from academics and sport, from the support services that they have here, they don't have a lot of time. So getting them to dial into what you want them to do in that moment is incredibly difficult. Uh, so so our ability to focus and offer that, that social comparison piece. Yeah, I see the social comparison piece a lot at the high school that I work at. Um, and uh, they're... Then both sides, you know, female and male, that very strong in sports. Um, you know, from a legacy standpoint, I think the women's sports are usually ranked in the top ten or twenty-five in the country um, from year to year. So there's there's that aspect that I deal with that 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 comparison. But so I I totally get the the element that you deal with. Now you brought up the word focus, and I, and I've heard in the past in some of the talks and podcasts that. You talked about focus being the most important mental skill. Why do you think that? And can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I, I really do. Um, you know, I used to kind of think confidence was king, and and you know, through my through my experience, just uh, just from a, a fundamental execution of task, we can be confident, we can be controlled emotionally, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're not focused on the right thing at the right time, you can't um, execute complex tasks. And most sports that we're engaged in, in involve complex tasks. You know, there's an automaticity to some of the movements, of course, but there's, there's a deep attentional focus on what we're doing. So I'm a big proponent of focus, and um, it's also one of the most challenging. Uh, so it's, it's something I talk to my athletes about on a, on a daily basis and, and try and make it resonate in different ways. Um, but that's, that's honestly why I, I, you know, I'm fully invested on, on focus. Um, we, we do spend some time on some of, some of the mindfulness pieces, again, depending on the, the age of the athlete and, and whether some of those most, the, those kind of elements will resonate with them. But yeah, attention focus is definitely for me the most important. And I, and I, and, and, quite openly like i work primarily now uh 
I do work primarily in tennis. So um, in a fast-paced sport, which also lends itself to also we have natural breaks after points and after games, our ability to, to get distracted, but also our ability to set into place specific routines and things and refocus cues and refocus strategies, it lends itself incredibly well to the mental game and um, focus as a skill in particular really works incredibly well with athletes in, in tennis. Now, can you share a little bit um, some either focus or refocusing strategies within tennis? Yeah, I mean, I spend a lot of time with my athletes in and around the routine. So the structure of the routine is is really, I, I break the routine into kind of two phases. And this is to simplify it. You know, I've, I've written on routines before, but just to simplify it is from a tennis perspective is we, we spend a little bit of time after the point in a recovery phase. So it's, it's recovering physically and, and mentally. So whatever's just happened, kind of a learning process, but also a physical recovery process. And then there's a preparation phase. So the preparation phase will be about our point plan and then our specific target from there. So our point plan is a little more of an internal focus, um, going over what are you trying to achieve in this point, what's your strategy, and then uh, our external focus will be switching from the internal to an external focus will be specific target points on call, whether it's a serve or return, get them to, to from an eye control perspective, to, to um, establish uh, the, the eyes, the head down call, to identify specific targets that they're working on. So it's really a recover, prepare, recover, prepare routine. And within that, we'll also build in, depending on the athlete, we're building some refocused tools, which can either be you know, a verbal cue, a piece of self-talk, a visual cue, which will obviously be something they identify that they want to focus on to, to remind themselves to refocus. Or, or a physical cue, which would, you know, it can be um, obviously something like bouncing a ball. It can be the use of the towel. It can be, you know, taking the hat off. It can do whatever. And we'll use a combination of those. Again, each athlete's a little bit different. So mm-hmm. I'll use a range of refocused strategies to enable them to bring them back to the present moment. Um, I, I did some grounding techniques, which is a little more mindfulness with some athletes. So a lot of different strategies in and around our ability to, to play present, uh, which, which, is incredibly challenging, but is probably the most important thing to do. So I tell my athletes all the time, I, I don't care whether you have a routine or not. It's not really the routine per se. It's what the routine is, is allowing us to do in order to bring us back to the present, but also to physically recover and then, and then to prepare. So that's kind of a very quick synopsis of what I do with tennis um, from, a, from a mental skills focus and refocus strategy. I love it. Those are all great strategies. Those are awesome. I love it. Now, I know you when you said recover, um, it brought up um, recovery, which I'm gonna I'm gonna take this in a different angle uh, from a recovery standpoint. Because I know that when we start talking about mental skills training, um, at times I think we can get so focused on interventions and strategies on the mental skill side of things, and maybe sometimes we don't really focus on recovery. And again. I'm not speaking for every mental performance coach out there, but when you think of recovery, uh, from your perspective outside of sleep, what do you think the most important activity is for an athlete for them to like implement within their recovery routine? The, from a recovery point of view, we we have we have in place here, and I'll, I'll speak from from kind of a, a whole holistic perspective. 
we have mechanisms in place through our, our medical services, through our athletic training and our physical therapy, um, you know, simple things such as, you, you know, post-practice stretch, ice bath, um, regeneration technique. We, we have a whole, you know, we have a suite of uh, a recovery room, I, you know, anything you can imagine from a athletic training point of view, the athletes can do here. There's also, you know, we build in, um, you know, specifically my athletes, I try and get them um, to reflect. So to spend some time during reflection. So we'll do things like uh, postponement reflections, postponement evaluations that gives them that moment to kind of stop and, and to think think through. And sometimes from a mental perspective, because what we tend to see is through performance is labeled good, bad. You either won or you didn't, and, and that's it. And we move on and we're on to the next. And they haven't fully processed and haven't fully um, yeah, processed the, the, the entirety of what happened. So through a reflective process of um, you know different different evaluation tools that I have, I'll, I'll get them to do a post-tournament evaluation or post-match evaluation, whereby they can work through some of the, the emotional um, challenges that they're having. They, they feel like they play poorly and then actually go through a reflective period whereby they're like, oh, actually, I, I did this well and I did this well. And that's an easy fix. And, and I, I just need to improve here. And that's something I can control. And that's something I can't control. So I think from a recovery point of view, reflection is really important from a mental health perspective, as well as kind of that emotional uh, emotional control. I love it. It's recovery uh, or reflective practice is huge. I, I always talk about with my athletes, it's it's where we actually get better. And if we don't, even if we do really well, even if we win, that does not mean that we just move on. We actually look at, uh, at things, even when we do things well, how can we do them better? And obviously, if we don't do things, you know, if we do things poorly, you know, we've got to look at it and and get the feedback from it. So I agree. I think uh, reflective practice is huge in the recovery routine. So I have two questions here before we uh, sign off here. So I'm going to bring this back to you a little bit. Um, when you reflect on your career, what is your proudest moment and why? I think... I think one of the one of the the moments that I realized that some of the work I'd done had, had resonated. I got a I got a letter back from an athlete that um, I'd worked with. She was a college athlete. She she was going into her senior year. She was captain. She was supposed to be all American. You, you can kind of write the script. And uh, last preseason game, she she tears her ACL and um, and she you know. It, 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 it's honestly like when I talk through it, it's kind of it's challenging even for me because you know we'd worked together for four, for three years going into the senior year. She was actually one of the athletes that worked the most consistently, and she comes into my office and and it costs. She can she's on crutches. She she just breaks down and uh, I, I feel very fortunate that I was there and to, to help her through that process. And um, you know we we did a lot of work and. and you know, I, I feel like, you know, we kind of parted ways. She she graduated, she actually transferred her final year, managed to play Division One for her final year, which was a goal of hers. And and then a, about two years afterwards, I got a letter from her, a handwritten letter, which uh, very rare for students to do anyway. And it was kind of, 
thanking me and, and giving me an update on her life. And, you know, it, it honestly brought me to tears that, you know, the impact, you know, I felt like I had had an impact, but she never really said it, you know, I, I, and I don't need that kind of uh, verification, but that letter just, I felt like, and, and you know, it, it had a profound effect on that athlete's career and there was nothing, nothing else that could replace that. Mm -hmm. I was with her in her kind of toughest moment. So that's, it's probably something I was most proud of and it wasn't about winning a game or a championship, but it was there for an athlete when she was at her lowest and it's something, you know, kind of, yeah, welling up and a little choked up even thinking about it now. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's certainly something that probably makes me the proudest. Wow. You, you know, it's crazy whether if you're a mental performance coach, a coach, I don't care, any kind of title of coach, what we do, what we can do in in a session, in an hour, 30 minutes, a conversation will affect an athlete for the rest of their life. And and if we're truly in the present and we're taking care of the moment, these moments turn into really beautiful memories like that. That is awesome to hear. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was certainly something that will always stick with me. I think whatever I end up doing, that 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 will that will forever stick with me. That's awesome. That's great to hear. Now, along this whole process, this journey of being a a sports psychologist, what do you think you've learned the most about yourself? I think I think I don't know if I've. I think my my thirst for learning. I I I think something I'm, I'm very proud of but something that even even now that I'm just blown away by the amount of stuff that I just that I simply just don't know I'm, I just go I, I read one thing and I'm down a rabbit hole with a whole different area and, I, and then I read something else and I'm down over there so so I think that that's mm -hmm. just the learning is something I'd really um, I've really learned about myself that I think I had that idea to do graduate school but like it, it just I don't know it, it's almost it's almost stepped it up but I, I recognize there's so much to learn and I'm just not going to learn it all but it, it it almost makes me kind of nervous and, and panicky like I, I don't I don't know this about this and I don't know this about this but it it, it keeps me continually kind of push the boundaries of my own knowledge and, and bring the team along with me and luckily I've got colleagues that are pretty similar and that we're, we're always trying to learn more about X, Y, and Z. So going through this, that, you know, graduation was just like one moment. And, I've, you know, since graduation, there's just like just so much information that I've learned um, just through experience, but also just my own my own desire to, to read journals or to read books and to, to pick people's brains and to try and see a different perspective. So I think that voracious um wanting to learn um it's something that's kind of sometimes i i say by god i you know i i, I do learn, I, I do try and read a lot and I, I do try and um you know try and go down a few different rabbit holes and sometimes sometimes my brain's a little all over the place but i think somehow it comes together <laughs> at the key moments I think it's awesome. You know, I, I, I've had a fair amount of guests on my show when I, when I asked them that most, not most, but a, a good, a good amount of said, you know, what I've learned about is that I just, I've never give up, given up on educating myself or reading. And 
you know, again, not to bring up uh, Mike Blasquez from UC Berkeley, but he, he answered pretty much the similar way that you did, but he was like, you know, in my role, if I am not constantly educating myself, I turn stale and I'll end up probably losing my job for not staying on top of all the new technologies and new trends. I have to, but he goes, but I enjoy doing the process in, in the midst of it. So it's, I'm the same way too. Like when, whenever I hear anything uh, new about grit or recovery or something about breathing, I'm like, I need to know, I need to know, I need to know. And, uh, and I love that about myself and about us because it, uh, it keeps us relevant and keeps us on our toes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, to speak on your show, Grant. It's, it's been an absolute honor. And if anyone wants to kind of get in touch, they can reach out on social media. And, and um, however I can be of help to any of like you, please let me know. Absolutely. And how can my listeners uh, connect with you on social media? Uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter at Sport Psych Dunk, D-U-N-C. So Sport and then P-S-Y-C-H-D-U-N-C. And um, if they want to drop me an email, it's duncan.simpson at ing.com. Beautiful. Well, Duncan, this was a treat. And thank you for sharing your story, your journey and your thoughts. Uh, you're a wealth of knowledge. And uh, this was a, an honor too to have you on my show. Thanks ever so much, Grant. I appreciate it.